Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Well, one thing that, that sticks out to me, remembering our lessons and, and classes um, at UNT, was you would make a point to distinguish between a player who writes and a writer who plays. I was wondering if you had a moment where you felt like you identified yourself more as a writer than a player. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely now a writer who plays. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean... I can still play drums and, and, you know, I can sound good in certain styles, but I'm certainly not like John Riley. I mean, John, John is an amazing player in terms of, well, just his books alone, mm. you know, and he's devoted himself to the history of drumming, very much like Ed Sof has, yeah, you right. know? Yeah. And so many drummers like that, you know, especially the educators. I mean, Peter Erskine, mm. Peter, yes. Peter's, I mean, there were a lot of composers, you know, Peter's a wonderful writer you know but i don't know i don't know how he would classify himself but i think most people would think of him primarily as a drummer mm. who writes sure and um some people don't even know i play drums i mean a lot of my students Ooh. had you know yeah. they never saw me play drums they saw me play piano in the classroom I was, oh i thought you were a pianist you know on your audition, didn't you play only piano and then on your, oh, oh, no, on your I, interview on your interview to UNT? To UNT, I, I did both. Right, I, I had to play. I played drums with uh, in a combo setting with, oh, and okay. I and I brought my compositions. Or, oh, okay. But then I played one tune uh, where I did a little piano solo. It was a ballad. Right, 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 right. You know, yeah. I mean, I play piano, but I'm not. You know, here again, I would never call myself a pianist in the sense of, hey, let's play Cherokee at. Uh, <laughs> Quarter note equals 300, you know. But in certain things, I mean, I can sound like I can play I can play nice piano. And know? Sof tells a story. You were doing a lecture or something, and you played only piano. And then on your way out of the door, Ed Sof, aren't you a drummer? Ah. <laughs> and then so you said. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, and, and I got to tell you this, guys, because you, you weren't around. But this past year, um, Jack D. Jeanette came to visit our school. Oh, wow. And he talked. He was, he was featured here with uh, his trio. But he came to school and talked to the students for an hour and just talked. Now, there was a drum set set up for him. Somebody had set up, and but there was the piano. It was in the recital hall. And so finally, somebody asked him to play. And he says, I'm not going to play drums. I mean, and that's the other thing about drums. You know, it's like play solo drums. I mean, Max Roach used to do it all the time, you right. know, so it can be done. But the thing is, is that Jack D. Jeanette is a, He's an excellent pianist and a composer. Yeah. And so he said, hey, I'm going to play piano. And he said, one of my influences is Eric Satie. Oh. And so, you know, that famous gymnopathy, yeah, he said, mm-hmm. it's boom, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, so yeah, major yeah. seven chords back and forth. Yeah. And so he said, you're going to hear some of that, you know, that influence. And he sat down and he played this beautiful composition on piano. And then when he did the Denton Arts and Jazz Festival, here's the trio, right? He comes out. They announce him. He comes out 
First thing he does, go over to the piano, play solo piano, and then the guys come over. I mean, they join in with him, and then he goes over to the drums, you know? And those, it's guys like that. I mean, Tony Williams was a wonderful composer. He There's an album called Wilderness. It's really a wonderful expose of his, some of his writing. But Louis Belson, I mean, there's a lot of drummers who write. So, you know, I don't yeah. have too much... <laughs> compassion for you know students that say well man i'm a drummer you know it's like well get in line you know <laughs> there's a, there's a whole bunch of us uh john hollenbeck right i mean there, there's there's so many drummers that write yeah and why it's because i mean what we're trying to do in college is to teach students not how to play the saxophone better the trombone better the trumpet whatever the respective instrument happens to be sure we're doing that too but the real thing we're trying to do at least in jazz is teach these students how to become comprehensive musicians Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. why so many drummers i think today even they write because they're not just drummers Mm -hmm. they're pianists Mm -hmm. you know they maybe they've played other instruments maybe they played vibes i mean you know, there's, there's that that idea, and and so for for um, even pianists, pianists, as we know, they have limitations as writers too. If they've never played a wind instrument, what's the problem always, right? They'll, they write too many lines, especially mm-hmm. on the computer today. Yeah. And you uh-huh. hear these lines that go on forever. And uh, I mean, I never had that issue with you guys, but every once in a while, I have a student come in, and you know. I'm either looking at the score or I'm hearing their arrangement executed through Sibelius or Finale, and it's a long line. And, and then, you know, I'm saying to myself, the, the horn players are never going to have the, the stamina right. to sustain that without a breath. And so my next thing is like, okay, well, I want you to sing that line. Uh. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it becomes evident, yeah, you know, that the pianist has now learned something. Mm-hmm. That So that, again, you know, it's like a, for, for any student who primary performance instrument doesn't require breathing drums bass guitar vibraphone mm-hmm. piano uh-huh. organ any of those instruments it's like one of the best things you could do if you can't learn a wind instrument sing in the choir yeah yeah you learn about phrasing mm-hmm. right you learn about breath the other thing with pianists you know, they don't know about the release of a note, right? right? Or <laughs> the vibrato, mm-hmm. crescendo, diminuendo, all of those things, especially crescendo, right? I mean, yeah. how do you get a crescendo out of piano? Notes. Unless you roll the notes. Right. Yeah. But, you know, there's all of those things that are missing from a pianist's sense, sensibilities, because it's always what I call like a front-end experience with the notes. They're on to the next note, and they never mm-hmm. re- fully embrace one note yeah whereas a a wind player or a string player has to worry about the front end and then sustaining the note and how are they going to interpret that and then how are they going to interpret the cutoff it's going to be a breath release tongue stop what is it going to be so yeah that's a very very good point how do you deal with the limitations of different instruments i mean you've always been someone that talks about pragmatic writing and, and how do you do that but still maintain an artistic integrity? Yeah, pragmatism is, you know, uh, especially in the uh, ivory tower of academic uh, and artistic growth and all of that, which is wonderful. But it also needs to have the balance of pragmatism. 
And I think, especially in our field, on the jazz commercial side, and I would say even on the classical side, there's, there's, it's, you know, orchestras uh, need funding, and and they cost a lot of money, and there's a musicians' union, and there's limited rehearsal time, and people aren't going to spend forever learning your music, and in some cases, it's dictated to you, you know, or they you're maybe they're reading it in the recording studio, like in a film date right. or something like that. Everybody's nobody's practicing. It's like you show up, you put the music down in, in front of the players. They're looking at it, and, and it better work. Yeah. So here again, just out of sheer survival and business sense, it's good to find that balance. But it starts certainly, I think, with this uh, sense of if you cannot have empathy for a player, meaning if you don't play that instrument, or if you do play that instrument, you can have empathy. Like because I used to play trumpet. I know what it's like to write for trumpet and I've written for some of the you know best trumpet sections in the world but I still am very respectful and once in a while if there's something you know that I write that's that's particularly challenging I'm prepared to change it if it if it you know I, I haven't had to do that but you know or I want my trumpet sections to know that I care about them uh-huh. you know and um well, they're all divas, so we will. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, but even just from standpoint, when you have the best players in the world, um, you have to realize that maybe you have as little as 20 minutes for, uh, you know, for a rehearsal. I'll tell you one story. Here's this is, talk about a one shot deal, right? We mentioned before about sometimes you write an arrangement, it has a life of, of four minutes. It gets played once and never played again. Wow. Uh, or potentially. You might be able to use it at another time. But um, there was a thing, it was at uh, Carnegie Hall. It was a benefit for uh, leukemia or one of those type things. And it, and it had, it was t- happening during the early evening hours. But all, like starting at nine in the morning to, Five in the afternoon, there were all these artists from Broadway and Cabaret World and whatever that each had their little time slot. Well, the singer whom I was writing for was scheduled very late in the day. So what do you think happened? Of course, everything runs behind. All right. So now I finally get up there. So I'd done this arrangement. The only way I had heard it was in finale, let's say, you know, or to check notes or whatever. So there I am. I'm up on the podium, getting ready to, finally to rehearse, and didn't have enough time to finish the rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And then the chart was only like four minutes long or something, but I had gotten through enough of it. But anyway, the bottom line was in the performance, I had to conduct, and the orchestra had to, we were, you know, on the back half, we were sight reading. Wow. Essentially. Wow. You know? <laughs> so these are the kinds of things that, that, Sometimes you know you, or you become aware of very quickly when you're in these situations. But for students too, is that to, the idea is you need to be artistic. You need to to stretch, but you also need to not play God with your music. Huh. I wrote it, therefore you must play it. No, huh. there are physical limitations, and as um, supposedly uh, Billy Strayhorn was. Supposedly said to the guys in the Ellington band, did you enjoy your part, you know? Uh, right, right, um, right. And it's not to say that players have to always like it, but at the very least, it's like we want to make sure that that it's not a struggle. 
hmm. for them, you know? Yeah. Or that it's like they, that they have to sweat, man, I'm like, I hope I'm going to make this, you right. know? Right. And in that sense, they, they, they can't enjoy the part because they're so nervous about if they're going to make it. And, you know, it's like you can take the best players in the world and you can make them vulnerable. Mm-hmm. By writing something that's so ridiculous, yeah, you know, it's like a weight yeah. a weightlifter. If he lifts two hundred and fifty pounds, well, ask him to hold three hundred and fifty pounds. He's going right. to struggle, right? You know, so it's uh, to find that balance. And well, going back to the idea of empathy versus sympathy, you know, so most writers probably don't play all the instruments. I certainly don't. So now I have to find sympathy with the the instruments that I don't play. Or if I played it one time, it was like, you know, when I was uh, doing music education degree and I played a little violin for a few weeks and a little yeah. trombone or whatever, you know. So, um, but you you learn how to engage with players and find out about their world. And they, if you come in with an open sense about it, they will help you too. Say, hey, you know, this doesn't work so well for this instrument and say, oh, okay, let me remember that, mm-hmm. you know, for next time or be prepared to change it. It's like, oh, what the, oh that doesn't work. Well, what, what do you suggest? Yeah. You know? So you like to ask the players along the way and just kind of check in, make sure that, yeah, you know, that nothing is too problematic for their parts. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is part of, especially for people in school or when they're, when they're working in a situation where they're hanging out, Right. If you're in a, playing in a band and you're on the road with a bunch of musicians and, you know, get to know the person who plays the instrument that you're least familiar with, mm-hmm. let's say. And certainly in school, it's it's a great time. I always tell students, like, go to rehearsals. Yeah, That's where you learn the most, where you, you see how the conductor is talking to the various players and you learn about balance imbalance interpretation you know you'll see the string players talking about bowing and all all the kinds of things that you don't see at a concert uh-huh you know various issues and uh um it's just if we want to write for these instruments i think that's another thing you know like there's sometimes maybe composers uh, potentially just in an abstract way say i think i want to write for such and such an instrument and we'll say that's great but what do you know about that instrument? If you want to write for a certain instrument, let's say you're intrigued by its sound, that's wonderful. But then the next thing is to find somebody who plays that instrument and you kind of get their perspective before you start writing. Another thing, I'll give you another, for instance, I had an opportunity to write for world-class violinist by the name of Anne Akiko Myers. She's outstanding. And uh, the recommendation came through Winton, actually. And uh, she wanted me to do uh, an arrangement of uh, Autumn Leaves, I think. And she doesn't improvise, but she just plays the melody. And, and I had to create a classical piano part. Everything was written right, out. Right, right, right. You know? Right. Um, and then she said, geez, you know, I love the tune tenderly, too. Would you make it a, a medley out of that? So then I had to figure out, okay, well, which one's going to go first mm-hmm. and all of that. But the idea was... For, you know, here again, I'm writing for a classical artist. I'm trying to get inside her head to see what she likes. You know, I think about it like, especially for us as arrangers, and maybe even composers, if you're if you're designing a piece of music for a certain p- person to feature, it's kind of like you're like a, what would be a tailor for clothes, 
landscape design. For those of you who don't you know, know Rich, you should know that his use of metaphors is second to none. <laughs> yep. And uh, and this is the best part of talking to Rich at any point. Puns, one. Right, right. Two, yeah. metaphors. So. <laughs> but, right, doesn't it provide a... It, does. a, a, it yeah. To me, it's like when you're trying to convey a point, I always find that the metaphors put it more into context. So much. So. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. we want to be simple so, and clear. So you a great educator. You know? You talk, you know, the monk quote of dancing about art, talking about music, like dancing Dance, about architecture. Yeah. Well, it, let's just use some comparative terms. So. Yeah. I mean, now looking back on it, you know, like all these things kind of make sense to me. But mm. for the young composers just getting started, composers or arrangers, it's that's the thing to keep in mind. Nobody's going to pay you to write your own music. You're going to have to, you know, learn how to write what people need. Mm. And... And there can be a, a fascinating uh, experience sometimes. I mean, we tend to be—I don't know—I don't want to say arrogant, but you know, when people ask us to arrange something, it's usually because all the other musicians in the room can't do it. So we possess a certain ability that most musicians don't have. And part of that is not only the skill, but it's also the patience. Yeah. Right. Yes. And so, yeah, we have all of that, and it's easy for us to to become confident to the point of being. Arrogance, cocky. cocky. That's a better word, yeah. right? Yeah, cocky. So it's like, well, man, you know, you just asked me to do this thing that you can't do. Don't start telling me what to do. You right. Know? And and to a certain point, yeah, that might be true. But at sometimes, you know, they're the people, they're artists too, and so they can have maybe a perspective that we didn't see. So yeah. for me, I'm always open to receiving those kinds of things. At the very least, to just for nothing else, just to consider mm-hmm. what the possibilities are. I mean, let the, we're going to let the creative process flow. Let's entertain all the possibilities. We always have the right to say, well, that idea doesn't work for whatever reason, or it's not as good as this other idea. But we're letting the ideas flow, come forth, whether they come directly internally from us or they come externally. That's what I, I love working with my two great friends, Dick Oates and Gary Dial, you know, when uh, projects that we do, you know, we're open to things. And, uh, you know, we listen to each other and it's not, there's no competition. You know, uh-huh. we're, we, all, we, we all bring something to the table and that's what makes it, I think, stronger, or yes. better. So you've been writing for the Lincoln Center Orca- and I know you yeah. did some, you've worked with Winton, you've worked with Toots Thiedelmans, you've worked with yeah. Ellen, you've worked with a lot of amazing artists. Are, do you have any particular experiences that really stand out that you uh, enjoyed, that yeah, stick out in your, in your memory? And, well. Or some of your favorite assignments. Conducting with, or for, r- arranging for Toots Thiedelman, and then conducting the thing at Lincoln Center, jazz at Lincoln Center was that was pretty amazing. Wow! Uh, just because he's such an iconic musician, and uh, he wanted an arrangement of "What a Wonderful World." Yeah. So and he brought the house down with it, you know, just an interpretation. And he was um, eighty-eight at the time. I remember. I he was. Oh, I was. He was hanging onto my arm. You know, we were walking out. Oh. And he was. I mean, he lived another several more years. Yes. But you know he was starting to, to to age, but it was um that was really neat, and uh, did it a couple other times. One with Annie Ross, who's still with us. She's 
wonderful singer. Mm-hmm. And then being on stage with, yeah, Kurt Elling. I mean, man, he's great. And Patty Austin, really a wonderful performer. And uh, I don't know. Um, those stand out, certainly. I'm not sure if I can think of any other ones right now, but it, it doesn't even matter how uh, grandiose or uh, how intimate the thing is. Of course. It's just a matter of uh, enjoying the music at the moment, you know, yeah. and when the big stuff happens, that's great. But here again, you know, my advice to the students is that don't worry about the big stuff. Just make yeah. the best music you can in the situation. And if it happens, it does. And if it doesn't, and there's a lot of wonderful musicians that maybe don't get always the notoriety that they might mm-hmm. like to get. But in their own place or whatever, they're, they're making good music and of course. with good musicians. And um, it's uh, a lot of fun. But I am looking forward to this project. Um, Winton asked me to, uh, to contribute to the upcoming program for Leonard Bernstein's music. Right. They're, Very they're, cool. they're celebrating. It's not quite the 100th, I guess. For some reason, they're doing it this year in November rather than 2018, which is, he was born in 1918. There you go. But um, close enough for jazz, as they say. <laughs> um, but um, I'm splitting it with Vincent Gardner, okay. who's the lead trombone player in the band, mm-hmm. a wonderful writer. So I chose my pieces, and they're already done. And that's another thing you guys have heard me say, uh, which I'll also just put out there for the young writers, is when you get an assignment, you get on it immediately, if you can. You do it as soon as you can. Why? Because you never know when the next thing is going to happen. Right? So this is going to be premiered in November, and I finished it, well, I knew I had to finish it in the month of... June, because I was traveling, I was teaching in Rome in July, and I was spent a week in Long Island doing concerts up there. One was with Warren Vachey, who's a friend and wonderful yeah, yeah, musician, yeah. so that was a lot of fun. But you know, those were going to take away my writing time, so I had to do most of that writing in June. I'm consumed with this theater project right now. I have to get that done for August 25th. They go into a workshop, and then I'll have to orchestrate it in the fall. Wow. And uh, I may be doing four orchestral arrangements, which I need to get done in November. <laughs> wow. Or, or October. I don't know. You know. And then there's UNT's going to start. So once, once I start teaching again, right, that's yeah. less hours yes. that I have. You know, th- that's kind of what happens. So to get that good work ethic of when you get... Uh, a writing assignment, and it's not due for six months. For me, it's like I don't don't let it don't be idle. You know, if you can do it, get it done. For me too, I guess I I thrive on when I get a new assignment, and I start to I guess embrace it. You know, think about it and whatever. It's it gets the creative juices flowing. Mm. I don't like it to get stale. Yeah. yeah, unless I can't get to it. You know, that's different, and then I have to try to kind of just keep it in the back of my head like it's on a low flame burner till I can get to it. You know? Right, right, right. right. 
you know, but there's that thing. I mean, there's no question about the difference that you guys had to learn and I had to learn too. You know, you guys started out maybe as pianists or saxophone players or whatever, and there's that immediacy of performance. Like, oh, there's a practice room. Let me just go in or, you know, whatever. But writing, as you know, takes a lot of time. Yes. And that's why I think a lot of people who even maybe have the ability that we have don't become writers because it takes so much time. And they'd rather be hanging out or they don't have the discipline or whatever the reason is. Mm-hmm. It's a different lifestyle. And so kudos to all of the the arrangers that we know mm-hmm. who have done it for their whole life. It's we know exactly the kind of commitment that they made yeah. right, yeah. to do that. And it looks glamorous. You know, when you're in the concert, somebody looks and say, wow, that person's got his or her music being played and or the conducting in and you know it looks fabulous right. it's like wow i want to do that yeah. right. but then there's the the whole other side those hours yeah. that we spend right yeah and look at all the work you guys did in your school all yeah. those projects just your recitals alone and then mm-hmm. the different right. concerts and you know and the things that you guys did that you didn't even weren't even asked to do as far as from the school standpoint Right, that you just did it because you wanted to do it. That's that passion that we have that drives us, or yeah. opportunities. You know, that's the other thing. How do I become a better writer, or how can, how do I become a writer? Write for opportunities. You know, one of my favorite things is instead of the student going with hat in hand or chart in hand, going up to some band leader and say, "Would you play my music?" Well, the perspective is all wrong. You're going, you're going to the director. Asking for a favor. You're asking for that director to take time out of his or her rehearsal to play your music. What's mm-hmm. in it for him or her, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Rather than the young composer or arranger who goes up to the conductor with no chart, just says, wow, you know, I love your band. I've been listening to it. It's fabulous, blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm a writer. I would love to write something for your band if, if you could use something. Is there something in particular that you could use? You've turned the whole perspective around. Now you want to do a favor for the band director. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, I really could use a ballad to feature my whatever. Or I have a vocalist and I don't have any charts. But huh, yeah. need, right? Now all of a sudden you've put yourself in that position where that director needs you. And you might be doing it for free when, when you first graduate. Oh. It all works out, yeah. you know, so... The, this is how young writers can get established, ultimately, is that they have to figure out what people need, and sometimes they have to do things for free the first time mm-hmm. to get noticed. And, you know, or that's that other identity thing, that all when you're a player who decides to become a writer... Because it doesn't work the other way. Most people don't start as writers and then become players. Right. For all the students that come through, especially the graduate program uh, at UNT, I say to them, you know, you're you've got to change your identity. If you know you you have the talent, you have the ability to write based on what you've done thus far, and you've decided now to get your master's degree in composition and arranging, which means in the next two years you're going to be publicly or in the eyes of the public, changing your identity from their perspective. You are no longer a trombone player. You are now a trombone player who writes, or you are a writer who also plays trombone right. or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, But changing the public's percent- 
public perception of your identity so that now they look at you as a writer. I mean, if anybody were to say, oh, yeah, Aaron Hedenstrom and Drew Zaremba, they're they're, uh, sax players. That's like selling you guys way short, (laughs) right? And both of you are amazing saxophonists, but you're not just saxophonists. You're also, you know, wonderful writers. And if and vice versa too, you know, they could say, Well, geez, you know, these guys are wonderful writers. Oh, did you hear him play sax? No, I never heard, right? And everything else that you guys do, right? <laughs> so that's that's the thing. Like some people don't know I'm a drummer. Why? Because I changed my identity. Didn't give up playing drums, but oh. I changed my identity in the sense of I needed to become known as a writer because I wanted for the rest of my life to, you know, I mean, Roy Haynes is still playing drums at 90, whatever he is. God bless him. Yes. But he yeah. also has an amazing reputation. I'm sure he's got some people that do the heavy lifting, you know, mm-hmm. and he goes and sits on the drums. Yes. And, and God bless him that he can still do it. Yeah. But, you know, most drummers, I think it's hard to be still playing drums in your 80s if you've got to schlep the drums and do all of that yourself. Yep. Writing and teaching, you can do... Forever. If if as long as you're in a reasonably good state of health at that mm-hmm. age, you know. So um, to me, that's where I f- saw the writing thing, not only for the personal artistic gratification, but also for the the longevity, and then teaching. I mean, working with the two of you guys was such a joy for me. You know that 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 level of ability and your work ethic. It was always always a pleasure, you know. Thank you. And um, we paid him to say that. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, to work with some drummers. I mean, I just but to teach tr- private drum lessons, which I used to do it, to some degree, but it, it wouldn't gratify me. What I would, if I was going to work with drummers, I'd rather do it in an ensemble context sure. and teach them how to make that bunch of noise musical in the context that. The, they're performing it, mm-hmm. you know. That would gratify me more. But to teach private drum lessons, I'll leave that to Ed Sof and John Riley, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll, I'm very happy teaching composition and arranging in all its facets. This is a new segment, uh, favorites. Oh, okay. So uh, we're just gonna like your your favorite album. Wow. Desert. You're on a desert island. Yeah. And you have one album. Speaking as a writer. Album that features a writer. One of my favorites has got to be Gary McFarlane's America the Beautiful. I had a feeling you were going to yeah. say that. Because <laughs> it was just, it just had such an impact on me. It's a six movement work that has such an amazing programmatic aspect, tells such a story. And with, uh, you know, studio orchestra, and, uh, there, there's just so much there. Uh, the spectrum of emotion is incredible from angst, passion, uh, beauty. Mm. resignation comedy yes. or, or in, in a sarcastic sarcastic wit I should say I mean it's just really amazing gosh I mean all Thad Jones stuff for that that blues yes. kind of writing and and the smile that he puts in his music mm. is yeah. so great you know a lot of people I mean they, they look at the the, the all the, the greasy and the, the you know the thick voicings and stuff like that which is certainly him but I think it's easy to overlook the wonderful sense of humor in yeah. a good way, not 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 slapstick comedy, but th- no. just this. There's that. There's a picture of Thad where he's got this, you know, ear to ear grin, and it just that was that personifies what's in his music. So, you know, anytime I hear Thad, 
that was a great model for me. And then uh, Klaus Olgerman. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's an album called Gate of Dreams, which mm-hmm. which is really some beautiful orchestral writing. And then uh, there's another one called Symbiosis, which he did with Bill Evans. He did a couple, but yeah. um, any of those things. And uh, Bob Friedman, uh, he, he did a, an album with for Winton called Hothouse Flowers. It was done in the mid-'80s and some really amazing arrangements of things like stardust yeah and wish when you wish upon a star you know there were certain albums that really reached out to me and of course these are the albums that uh um well certainly with the latter two gentlemen you know thad jones oh and don sebesky's first light and then uh, earlier gil evans with the all those the trilogy, you know, like yeah. sketches of Spain being the last one, probably mm-hmm. the most unique. But yeah. you know what he did with Porgy and Bess, yes, just uh, you know, those are really, really great. I think those are the some of the standouts. Yeah, for me. How about uh, favorite classical work? Wow, Holst's Planets. Oh. Yeah, really nice. Gosh, uh, anything by Bach. I mean, as you know, I teach the students Bach. Yeah. You know, in, in humble amounts, but the idea is, even if you only know two or three pieces by Bach, if you understand the technique of writing counterpoint in yeah. the, and the mastery, I mean, to me, you've got you to to know counterpoint that way. You, you really need to study Bach. And then yet, on the other side, and of course, here again, the stereotype is for people who like look at it, uh, like, oh, well, he's that guy with the, writes all the busy notes and all the zillion lines. I say, well... You know, you need to listen to some of his what I would call ballad writing. Yeah, I mean, such beautiful melodies. You know, mm-hmm. he was yeah. he was um, an amazing composer. So anything by Bach, gosh, other classical works. Oh, the, certainly the Stravinsky. Um, everything from like the Rite of Spring to some, the more calm Symphony of Psalms is gorgeous. Yeah. Yes, yes. I like Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. That's really nice. That, that's a few, that's the death march, right? Yeah, that that second movement is amazing yeah, because it's yeah, 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 yeah. You know, the top part is bum 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 ba, yes. ba, be, bum. which way. which is kind of another message is kind of like wow, that's your melody, right? You know, mm-hmm. but it allows that body da 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 mm-hmm. da, lets that counterline come through and and that sense of patience, you know, where where maybe you don't have a zillion notes right away, you. You like in your composition, take your time, right? Uh, There's that right. message. It's like stop <laughs> trying to get through everything so soon, you know. Yeah. And simplicity, and that's the thing. I think it's another lesson, as you know. One of my big words, concept words, is balance. Mm, and we tend get to tend to in, in schools, you know, where we're trying to constantly consume more information and, and equate more complexity with getting better it's like we have to remember that simplicity has its rightful place and we need simplicity to complement complexity if there's too much simplicity i think the listener can deal with that if there's too much complexity a lot harder to deal with right yeah so better to err on the side of being too simple i think rather than being too complex it's like a swing chart right it's Mm -hmm. like well what should i do well you write a swing chart Number one thing is don't write things that, that prevent swing. it from swing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Whatever you do, protect the swing. And a lot of times, you know, say, well, I could write this. You know, I've got this uh, five over four thing, and I've got this superimposed hemiola on another thing, whatever, you know. And, and um, 
We need hemiol in the swing. It's the three against two. There's no question about it. It's all over the place. But if we exaggerate it to a point where the thing becomes obscured or the swing loses its flow and good feeling and loses its joyous sense, mm. then what good is the complexity? You know, The idea of we need complexity to to emerge in places, but we also need relief from it, too. Yeah, that might right. be another way to think of it. Regardless of what favorites each of us may have in classical music, I mean, I know for myself, I became a much better composer and arranger for having studied classical music. Huh, yeah. And I studied all the eras, you know? Pre-Baroque, but mostly, I mean, I think for most jazz musicians, it's got to be at least from Baroque into classical Romantic. I mean, you find so much of jazz harmony it's once a, you start to get into language. romantic and impressionistic yeah. periods, and then you find the the modal thing in the impressionistic period as yes. well, mm-hmm. and then the twentieth century thing. I mean, I don't think you can write good modern jazz unless you understand Bartok and and uh, Stravinsky and mm. some of those composers. So, I mean, I remember some some diehard jazzers giving me. That kind of advice, like, man, you know, better be careful. That classical stuff's going to mess you up, you know, <laughs> whatever. And so that's my other piece of advice to the young students out there. When somebody tells you, trying to limit you in a bad way, don't listen to that music, whatever. It's like, maybe you need another, get a, get a second opinion. Yeah, right. Sure, you know? sure. Because uh, what we've done, you know, it's uh, bringing both worlds together. You need, you need both. You don't learn about form and development truly, I think, unless you you look at classical composition, especially later classical composition, where it's through compose, it's not song mm-hmm. form. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the big thing too. It's like you know, we all as jazz players, especially coming from performance, like we're we're used to that s- small group playing on the sm- on the song form and in so- and, and in uh, small group when we're improvising in the moment, we need that song form to keep our place, and that's that's the trade-off. That's the we'll we'll rely on that as if even if you want to call it a crutch or whatever, so that we can be creative and inspiring in the moment to to do a lot of complex things. But when we go to do an arrangement, you know, we have to eventually realize that that song form. It's not we don't need to have the song form keep our place. Right. Mm-hmm. We as the arranger are now keeping everybody's in place virtue by virtue of looking at the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now it's like, well, man, I need to break out of the song form. I need an interlude or I need some transition or I need to figure out how to, maybe I'm going to mess up the song form a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? Break the symmetry. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and be a little more adventurous with it. So, and those kinds of things, you know, I, I think you don't learn how to do that until you've started to listen to a lot of classical music and you learn how to break free of those formats you know yeah yeah writing song form charts which and i and i've done it too i still i still will do it if it's the right thing to do but to me it's the difference between like when you're laying let's say on a floor a tiled floor you put one tile down and you put another tile down that's like a a song form where you can see all of the chunks right see all the individual pieces of tile versus through composed where it's let's say a, a rug or car i mean a carpet you mm-hmm. know something that has no perceptible seams in it mm-hmm. and when you learn how to do long form and 
make your transitions so that they're that they flow and you're getting rid of those seams when you go back to song form writing you learn how to do simple things that hide those seams uh-huh. in some ways sometimes reharmonizing right so that all your a sections aren't the same harmony starting on the one every time or whatever yeah yeah you know so for those who maybe you know as a quick example if somebody's wants a uh, a representation of that they could listen to that arrangement of alone together that I did for Mel Lewis where the a sections within that long tune are always harmonized differently and it gives the the tune a sense of uh, a long view not not partitioned mm-hmm. so that the end of the first a flows into the second it feels like new ground because it's it's different harmony it was that concept of classical music that enabled me to get out of that boxy type thing you know and that comes later on with as the the jazz student jazz writer evolves initially they need that say like just you know i'll be happy if you just do the song form and you you know you're Mm -hmm. if everything just sounds good right right? like when we were when you guys were my teaching assistants with the basic arranging class we were happy if if those students who had never written a big man chart before if they could just make it sound good instruments in the right place Mm -hmm. make it swing or whatever it had to do and we're not worried about form and development you know it's too soon to be worried about that but ultimately as we become more accomplished to me it's like it's like a good a great soloist right it's not worried about what notes go with the chords it's the idea of did you tell a story did Mm -hmm. if you're going to take four choruses did the solo develop in a way where the four choruses did, didn't uh, become boring, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, Rich, thank you so much. My pleasure, this fellas. A, yeah, this is a real special episode for us having our our guru, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> in, in, yeah. with us uh, here, and and we're all in the same room again. So yeah, that, fantastic. Any, anytime we can make that happen, I'm I'm always yeah grateful for that. So, and I I look forward to, uh, you know, hanging with you guys and wherever that's going to be. I don't know where, but I always always look forward to it. And I'm really proud of both of you, man. You guys are doing it the right way. And and you're both gentlemen, which is another important thing in this business. You know, you could have a lot of talent and, you know, you could be really good at what you do, but you got to get along with people. And the idea of responsibility and deadlines and all of that, right? We yeah. we know what that's about. So it's the other thing that I think a lot of times professional, I mean, students who want to become professionals don't realize, like, mm-hmm. you got to meet the deadline. Yeah. yeah. You know, show up on time, smile on your face, and try yeah. to make it all work for everybody. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All right. Words well, this has been a lot of fun for me. Indeed. For us too. It's really fun for us. Thanks again, Rich. And, uh, Yeah, thanks for sharing everything. Yeah. We hope you tune in for the next episode. Be sure to subscribe on uh, iTunes or at uh, podbean.com. Yep, or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, if you have any questions, follow-ups, any kind of topic ideas, feel free to send them to thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, Rich. My pleasure, guys. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing. 
and hope to see you next time.